1: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a medley of stories from across the week to tickle your taste buds. I'm Anne McElvoy, head chef at Economist Radio. And on your menu, why President Trump's tariffs are changing eating habits across the border. The Silicon Valley native who thinks you should delete all your social media accounts right now. And how the longest heatwave for half a century is disrupting Britain's courts and its pubs. First things first, our cover leader. The North Atlantic Treaty Organisation was born in the shadow of the Second World War. This cross-continental friendship won the Cold War and then built democracy in newly liberated Eastern Europe. But as our cover story explained, the Western alliance is not so friendly anymore. A transatlantic rift is opening.
2: The mood before the NATO summit in Brussels on July 11th and 12th is poisonous. As President Donald Trump accuses the Europeans of bad faith and of failing to pull their weight, they accuse him of crass vandalism. A second summit between Vladimir Putin and Mr Trump in Helsinki on July 16th could produce the once unthinkable spectacle of an American president treating his Russian opponent better than he has just treated his allies.
1: Of course, the meetings may go off without a hitch. Mr Trump is full of surprises. More worrying are deeper rumblings at NATO's core.
2: Mr Trump and his generals are exasperated by the feeble efforts of many NATO members to honour their promise to raise defence spending towards 2% of GDP by 2024. Policymakers from both parties think that, as the world's attention shifts to Asia, whining, sanctimonious Europeans deserve less of their time. Mr Trump fatuously accuses the EU of being set up to take advantage of the United States and chastises it for unfair trade. Meanwhile, Europe is divided.
1: The Western Alliance is in trouble, but we argued it is worth saving.
2: In a dangerous and increasingly authoritarian world, it can act as a vital source of security and a bastion of democracy. But the Alliance does not have a God-given right to survive. It must continually earn its place. Easier said than done. Europe should do everything it can to resist Mr. Trump's instinct to lump trade with security. Wrapping them up together will only make the West less secure as well as poorer. Next, supporters of the alliance need to be practical. That means paying up. For America's allies, being practical also means keeping up. Collaboration in areas like cybersecurity will make the alliance more valuable to America.
1: At its heart, this is
2: a battle of ideas. Since the Soviet collapse, the sense of threat has receded and the barriers to working together have risen. Yet that does not make the transatlantic alliance obsolete, as Mr Trump once claimed. America's alliances are an asset that are the envy of Russia and China. NATO is an inheritance that is all the more precious for being irreplaceable.
1: To read more about the prospects for this week's Summit and Beyond, pick up a copy of The Economist or do subscribe. Whichever side of the Atlantic you're on, go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. On the North American continent itself, another fault line is growing. A piece in our America
3: section found that Mr Trump's new tariffs on Canadian goods have sparked a food fight. Ketchup is among the 16.6 billion Canadian dollars, that's 12.6 billion US dollars worth of American goods that are subject to tariffs imposed by Canada to retaliate against American levies on its steel and aluminium.
1: The plateful has
3: become political. Online guides on how to shop like a patriot suggest royal toilet paper in place of Charmin, and Minute Made Orange Juice, which is packed in Canada instead of Tropicana from Florida. The Canadian market share of French's ketchup, made with domestic tomatoes and processed in Canada, more than doubled. French's is owned by an American firm, McCormick & Company. Primo, however, is all Canadian, according to a chart headed How Canadian Is Your Ketchup? Well, it's fair to say
1: this condiment rebellion isn't yet having a huge impact on trade, but there may be more to
3: come. The best test of Canadian feelings may come in winter, when hundreds of thousands of snowbirds flock to holiday homes in the southern United States. Will they brave Canada's harsh weather or fly south, bringing bottles of Primo with them?
1: Now for a taste of the week in Economist Radio. My producer and I escaped our studio for a trip behind the scenes of Rogers and Hammerstein's The King and I, just opened in London's West End.
4: Your Majesty wishes
0: me to leave. I will tell you when I wish you to leave. Your Majesty, this is schoolteacher, Madame Leonewens. You are
2: schoolteacher?
3: Yes, Your Majesty, I am schoolteacher.
1: We were there to interview Tony Award-winning director Bartlett Shear for the latest episode of The Economist Asks, our chat show. I asked him, how do you go about reviving a play written in the 1950s and set in the 1860s as a tale for today?
0: When we first started doing this three years ago, it was the piece it was. We restored a line from the original text in which Uh, The king says, sometimes I want to build a fence around Siam. Sometimes I want to let everyone in. And our audiences, post the man who is currently our president, uh, really exploded at that line because they could see this sense. You see that here in England with Brexit. This sense of, do you close your borders or remain open to others? And this is a king in 1862 going through exactly the same problem.
1: stage we turn to the screen now, the small one in your pocket that is. How many of you check social media at least once a day? Hmm. How about five times? Guilty as charged. Or maybe even more. On the latest episode of Babbage, Jaron Lanier, a pioneer of VR, argued we need to get off social networks and back to reality.
0: For the sake of society, at least see if you can be part of the island that is off it to to just give us some perspective, some ability to have a conversation. But if you're a young person, for your own sake, just to know yourself, get off for a while so that you can see the world a different way. Um, I know it's scary. I know it's hard. Any experiment when you're young that pushes the limits and creates a new view of the world is going to be hard and difficult and you might lose people in the process. This is one of those. This is like going trekking for half a year in Tibet or something. You should do it. You might have some losses. You'll probably have some gains too.
1: So come on then. Could you do it? Would you really like to do it? You could tweet us and let us know at Economist Radio. And while you're weaning yourself off, we also warmly welcome emails, radio at com. we love to hear from you. Social networks are certainly useful, but whether those uses and abuses are good or bad is all a matter of perspective. Take cheating in exams.
0: As long as there have been exams, students have found ways to cheat. Today, the correct answers are just a few taps away on a smartphone. So countries have come up with new ways to stop the funny business. Some use metal detectors, surveillance cameras, mobile phone jammers and even drones.
1: An article in our Middle East and Africa section found that some countries have taken an even more drastic step.
0: Cheating in high school leaving exams got so bad in Mauritania and Algeria that this year, the authorities turned off the internet for the entire country. Algeria did so for at least an hour during tests, which last about a week. Mauritania cut access from morning until evening on exam days. Other countries, such as Iraq, Uzbekistan and Ethiopia, have for years been shutting down the internet during exam time.
1: This may be effective for stopping the leaks, but at what cost?
0: Darrell West of the Brookings Institution, a think tank, estimates that in 2015-16, internet shutdowns ordered by governments, whether to stop cheating or stifle dissent, cost countries at least $2.4 billion. For that kind of money, countries could even improve their schools.
1: Over in Britain, the torture exams is now over for most students and they're out and about enjoying the longest hot spell for 42 years. The heat isn't so much fun for those of us stuck in the office or the studio. A
4: correspondent in our Britain section paid a visit to the Royal Courts of Justice. Judges and barristers sweat beneath their curly horsehair wigs and black robes. In one room, these are set aside because the judge has decided to have the hearing unrobed on account of the heat. Wigs may look distinguished, but they're not much fun for the wearer. The wigs are itchy, especially for those with thinning hair, and they must be kept close to hand, for occasionally a barrister may face a sudden situation in which a wig and a robe are required. And investing in a new one will also set you back a hair-raising amount. With the gown and extras like the wig tin, a full kit costs more than £1,000. Some get lucky with hand-me-downs. Less picky barristers store their wigs in biscuit tins. But for now, most barristers are willing to sweat it out. Some barristers feel that the outfit gives them more punch when they cross-examine witnesses. Others believe that the get-up makes it less likely than a vengeful criminal recognises them outside the courtroom. But as the late Lord Donaldson, a senior judge, once put it, There is no urgent need to go discarding something which has been out of date for at least a century. In the heat, Britain's pubs have, of course, been
1: doing a roaring trade. But there's a problem. British and European brewers are afflicted with a severe shortage of carbon dioxide, the gas that bubbles your beer and gets it from barrel to tap. How did this atrocity happen? Our Money Talks podcast turned to Bridget Simmons, Chief Executive of the British Beer and Pub Association
3: for all the answers. I'll be honest and say the CO2 producers are not great communicators. There are some brewers like Heineken who produce their own CO2 at their own breweries, but the rest of the industry we just did not know that they were going to have this serious problem this year. And of course we've got unprecedented hot weather. So we have the capacity in the brewing industry to produce 10 million pints a day. But I've got breweries working 24/7 to get the beer out not only for, of course for the hot summer but also because we have the World Cup. We reckon that the world cup could be a boost to pubs of over 50 million pounds so this is the worst time for us to have a problem like this as parched
1: pub goers contemplated the awful prospect of flat warm draft ale a listener wrote in from across the pond
0: plenty of delicious cold beer here in america for independence day no tea though for some reason the shipment of tea we got is all salt waterlogged
1: oh there's a surefire way to deepen the transatlantic rift that's the end of this week's tasting menu And if you're still thirsty, there's no shortage where that came from. You can read and listen to more at Economist.com or by subscribing to Economist Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. And if we're your cup of tea or your glass of beer, well, give us a rating. It does make all the difference. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This
4: is The Economist.